From WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. Over a four-decade career, Rush has built an obsessive cult of fans who worship the group's lyrical prowess and epic prog rock suites. When radio was screaming for three-minute songs, we said, well, here, this is seven and a half. Can't you deal with that? No, we can't deal with that. Getty Lee and Alex Lifeson of Rush join us. Plus, we pay tribute to the late Pete Shelley of the Buzzcocks. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and later in the show, we'll pay tribute to Pete Shelley, the leader of the great punk rock band, The Buzzcocks. He died earlier this month at age 63. But first, we'll revisit our 2016 conversation with Getty Lee and Alex Lifeson of the great Rush. Wow, you don't That's a little bit of the song Something for Nothing by Rush, featuring bassist and vocalist Getty Lee, guitarist Alex Lifeson, and drummer Neil Peart. Now, Rush has built up quite a discography featuring intricate instrumentals, soaring vocals, and philosophical lyrics. The band formed in Toronto in the late 60s and released their first album in 1974, and since then there have been numerous incarnations of Rush. The early albums featured Led Zeppelin-influenced hard rock, Then they entered a period where they were exploring these science fiction themes on progressive rock sidelong album suites that the fans absolutely loved. Those were the lyrics by Neil Peart, and that is considered the golden era of Rush for many fans. In the 80s, Rush scored radio hits with songs like The Spirit of Radio and Tom Sawyer and entered into a synth-driven phase soon after but it's basically those three core members, and the fan base loves them for it. I would say this is one of the most obsessive fan bases in the whole world, Jim. It's almost a little frightening, Greg, and that's from someone who would consider himself a lifelong Rush fan. It is joyously geeky and cultish. You're on the bus or off the bus with Rush. There are so many reasons to love Rush. They've never stopped moving forward. They've never stopped challenging themselves. There is that virtuosity, but it's never at the expense of the song. Mm -hmm. It's always put to use in rocking hard. Drummer Neil Peart, I'm sorry to say, rarely gives interviews, but I'm really excited to have Rush bassist and vocalist Getty Lee and guitarist Alex Lifeson as guests on the show. Alex, Getty, welcome to Sound Opinions. Hey, Hey, how you doing? Great to be here. Why don't we start at the very beginning? Junior high is when you two first met? That's right, yeah. Yeah, we met in grade seven. Wow, seventh grade. What, what, What was the musical passions in seventh grade for both of you? Um, I think we kind of bonded over a band called The Cream. Mm -hmm. Uh, We both really liked what they were doing, and uh, we listened to their records and wanted to sort of emulate them, and people like John Mayle and the Blues Breakers. Yardbirds. uh, Yardbirds, yeah, early Yardbirds, and Buffalo Springfield. Those were the bands that were kind of turning us on at the same time. People forget how much blues permeates the catalog, uh, especially on those first three albums, like up to 2112. Yeah, that's really true. Mm -hmm. Uh, And even now, there's still moments where we really try to indulge that bluesy feel. (laughs) 
we're so restless as players and as writers, particularly me, that sometimes those uh, influences get kind of buried under all the time changes and all the <laughs> the, the complexities, you know, the techno uh, you know abilities that you have in terms of uh, editing your music together now. But that's not really dissimilar f- from uh, Zeppelin when you listen to the Zeppelin material. A yeah. lot of it's based in the blues, but some of it is just so outside. And Jimmy Page was such a great writer for that reason. Yeah, it's a launching pad as opposed to the final destination. Uh, right, exactly. For you guys, for sure. Well the band has an incredible reputation as great musicians. I think the musicianship is one of the things that has been an attraction for a lot of the fans. Alex, uh, let's start with you. Where did you develop your acumen on the guitar? I was self-taught. I started when I was 12 years old. I didn't take any lessons until I was 17, and then I took classical guitar for a year with a friend who was a classical guitar teacher. And those were really the only lessons I ever had. So I just sat down with records and played them over and over again until I could figure out the riff or the solo or whatever it was that I was working on, and then uh, committed it to memory. Wow. So just deconstructing music as you were listening to it and trying to figure out how to do it yourself. I can picture it like it was yesterday, (laughs) sitting there by a little record player with all those pennies taped on top of the stylus and just going back and forth, particularly the solo from from a cream song, actually, from Spoonful. Uh And I remember when I actually figured it out and I could play it all the way through. It was one of the high points of my life, I think. Getty, what about you? Pretty much the same story. I was self-taught around the same age and uh, originally started on uh, six-string guitar. The group of basement guys I was jamming with needed a bass player, so they voted me as the bass player. (laughs) I had to go buy one, (laughs) find one. (laughs) Were you happy Uh, about that? Were you happy about saying, okay, kid, I know you play guitar, but now you're going to play bass? Actually, I was. I was kind of excited at the idea of learning that instrument. And once I started playing it, once I begged my mother for the money to go buy a, an instrument, mm-hmm. I really fell in love with it pretty quickly. You know, as Alex said, I started learning all these great songs by The Cream and other people, and I quickly found that it was something I was quite good at, and that, of course, at that age makes you feel good that there's something you can do pretty well. Grandma wasn't so thrilled, though, I gather, Getty, right? Yeah, my grandmother lived with us at the time, and uh, my pals like Alex and John would come over, and we would practice in the basement sometimes, and it was an almighty noise that we were creating. Very loud. (laughs) And she really could not understand what was happening here. She was very upset. (laughs) (laughs) You know, this woman survived the Holocaust. She was an incredible woman. She had to survive all that just to face the horrible (laughs) noise we were making. (laughs) 
When did you guys know that it was really gelling, that you had something special, that the identity was forming? Because I, mean, I look at the first two albums as sort of like you're stumbling along and you're getting somewhere interesting. And then I think, you know, of course, every Rush fan has their own uh, analysis. But, I, you know, to me, it really gels with 2112. Yeah, I would say yeah. that that's accurate. I, and I would say the weirdness of Caress of Steel was a really important stepping stone to 2112. Mm-hmm because when we attempted that kind of failed sidelong experiment with the Fountain of Lamneth, after time we saw that there was a lot wrong with that. And uh, when we set out to make 2112, it was, you know, to, to get it right. So, you know, I've often said this and I really believe it's true, you have to fail in order to succeed and Caress of Steel was super important for that reason. Well, and there was also the key change with, with the drummers. After John Helsey apparently decided that touring life was not for him, and left the group in 1974. Mm-hmm. What was the story behind Neil Peart joining the band? Well, he came to audition. We auditioned three drummers at the time, and Neil was the second drummer. Here's this tall, lanky guy with very short hair. He looked very nerdy, totally uncool. And Ged and I, of course, were in our velvet pants and <laughs> platform <laughs> shoes, and we were the epitome of cool. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, this guy's never going to fit in our band looking like this. And he set up his drums, and there were a set of Rogers drums, and they were very small, like small toms, a small kick drum. And they looked very unusual with this big, tall, lanky guy. But once he got behind the kit and started playing, we were both just so blown away. jammed for the longest time and then we sat around and we talked about stuff from you know literature to music to whatever and then got back into jamming afterwards and we spent the whole day and most of the evening with him and we were convinced that he was the one and then when once we got out on the road which was a mere like 10 days later or something that's how quickly it turned around we didn't really know him so it was a whole kind of learning experience. And, you know, he read a lot. He talked about kind of subject matter that we didn't concern ourselves with at that stage. And so he turned out he was a much more interesting character than we had bargained for. And mm-hmm. there was a whole period of getting to know each other. And that's when we got the idea that, hmm, this verbose fellow might be able to write our lyrics. <laughs> did, did you ever think back of, like, if we had hired the other guy, one of the other two guys, how different Rush would have been? Yeah, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation. No, I'd be, yeah. I'd be doing the plumbing in your house. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. You, you do tell the story, Alex, that your dad really wanted you to be a plumber. In fact, he'd sometimes pick you up at the bars, right, and take you Oh, on. yeah. 
I'd come out from the bar, and he'd pick me up at one thirty, standing out in the street, and I would go and work with him till. I don't know, seven or eight in the morning. Oh, wow. And then he would take me home, and then he would go to work at his other job. Uh, he, he usually had two or three jobs. My father was a very hard worker. Wow. But he always thought that the music was not a very dependable uh, life and that very few people make it and that I should have something to fall back on. And plumbing was, you can make good money from plumbing, I'm telling you. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. have the, it's in my name, the business, I put it in your name just in case. <laughs> so well, so I, I, I'm thinking about it, you know. I'm still there I, for I you could, if you uh, want it. I, I like to, you know, I like to be busy and get my old gangly wrench out and get at it. We'll hear more from Alex Lifeson and Getty Lee on their hobby, Rush, in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Sound Opinions, that is The Trees from the 1978 album Hemispheres by Rush. We're joined this week by Rush guitarist Alex Lifeson and bassist and vocalist Getty Lee. The third member of this long-running Canadian trio is, of course, the virtuosic drummer Neil Peart, who also writes the bulk of the lyrics, but, sadly, generally avoids interviews. Now, every Rush fan has a different opinion about what the band's best album is, My favorite will always be Hemispheres, maybe because it was the first Rush record I ever bought. So I asked Eddie Lee if Hemispheres is still near and dear to his heart, too. Oh, absolutely. Hemispheres, for me, was an incredibly painful record to make. So I associate a lot of uh, pain with that memory. Uh, we, We showed up in Wales at this house, really, near the recording studio. And we had nothing written for the album, like Mm. zero. And we holed up there for, you know, weeks, writing this record from scratch. And it was very intense, and the music was very complex and very difficult to play. But, of course, we loved it. And when we moved over to the proper recording studio, it was really hard to record it because of how complicated it was to play. And so we finally... We had really high ideals, right? We wanted to record everything in one take, beginning to end. You know, 12 minutes of uninterrupted one take, but that didn't (laughs) didn't work out that way. (laughs) We kind of had to divide it into three parts and glue them together kind of thing. And then further, after like three, I guess it was about three months in the country, in the Welsh countryside, we moved to London to do the vocals. And... When I went in to do the vocals, I'd realized that I hadn't really considered the key that all these things were in. And for me to sing them, it was one thing to, to, to write them, and you're not singing full out, you know, you're kind of singing the melodies in, in rehearsal going, yeah, no, 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 I can do this, yeah, that'll, be, that'll work. And then when you actually have the finished record and you're trying to sing to it, I realized I had to sing even higher than I had ever yeah. sung before. Yeah. 
So it was two excruciating weeks for me of hitting all those notes and getting them right. In the end, we again had problems mixing it. We had to change mixing studio, so it was kind of a bit of a, a journey, that album. Yeah, so yeah. sometimes I skip over it, I think, just due to the painful memories. But it turned out great, and I was super proud of it when we finished yeah. it. Well, it makes sense, then, how you go from the ambition of 2112 and Hemispheres into a more radio-friendly album like Permanent Waves in 1980. I mean, you've already written the most complex music maybe ever for a rock band. So was it a conscious decision to write songs that were a little more concise? Well, Permanent Ways also has yeah. sure. some some longer stuff. But yeah, Jacob's Ladder yeah. was... I, mm. I think the, the key thing in what you're saying is the sidelong rush mm-hmm. kind of ended with Hemispheres. And in my mind, we had done The Fountain of Lamneth, we had done 2112, and now we had done Hemispheres in that sidelong search and mm-hmm. I was kind of feeling like we were just starting to repeat ourselves in a way that we had kind of got a formula for these long songs and that was becoming less interesting to do for me and that's why you know I sort of pushed and we all sort of agreed that we should try to accomplish it in seven minutes <laughs> yeah. seeing what that that time frame still not a commercial song by any stretch of the imagination when radio is screaming for three-minute songs, we said, well, here, this is seven and a half. Can't you deal with that? <laughs> no, we can't deal with that. So uh, it was a big change, though, and it changed the way we looked at songwriting, and that was a kind of inspiring moment. And yet you were still cutting against the grain, it seemed like. Even a song like The Spirit of Radio, which got a ton of radio airplay, even though it was essentially an attack on commercial radio in a lot of ways. Yeah, that's uh, right. You were attacking radio, and yet, okay, this is the song that radio chooses they're going to play from Rush. So it must have struck you guys as somewhat comical. Yeah, I have to say it did, because it just showed that they weren't really understanding what we were saying. <laughs> and uh, we just figured radio loves songs that have the word radio in the title. Yeah. <laughs> That was a kind of success we had never really had before. And it just felt like something was changing here. Which is why, at that time, we were originally scheduled to do a live album. And we kind of looked at each other and said, you know, I think what we're kind of onto here is more exciting. Let's not do a live album. Let's go back in the studio. And that's when we made Moving Pictures. And of course, our lives changed really forever after moving pictures. A Monday warrior, mean, mean stride. Today's Tom Sawyer, mean, mean pride.
We talked about the way radio stations seem to miss what the lyrics to Spirit of Radio were really about, but that's a chronic problem throughout Russia's history. People ascribe lots of meanings and theories to Neil's lyrics that may not have anything to do with what the band intended. Do you ever sit back and say, what the heck? What is that about? <laughs> mm-hmm. I know. It's strange, the influence that these songs have had on a variety of people from walks of life. And it's true what you say. Some people have very different ideas of what we're saying than what we were intending to say. And, you know, sometimes that's a great thing in the fact that there's a universality in the lyric that allows you to interpret it in your own way according to your own sensibility. But Mm -hmm. it does come back to haunt you sometimes. Well, Getty, was it important to you to talk to Neil and say, hey, what are you getting at here? So that you could understand it as you were singing it, or, or was that not important? Oh, it's incredibly important, and sometimes we can't agree, Mm -hmm. and the song doesn't get written. He's an incredible songwriting partner and has learned over the years to be more and more generous and less and less insistent on something being used. He's acutely aware of the difficulty that I have singing some of those lyrics, and he will do really almost anything to make my life easier and give me the ability to put more emotion and more tunefulness into the melodies that I have to write. So um, we talk about these lyrics endlessly at times, and sometimes it's not necessary because I feel like I get exactly what he's after, and then I just run with it. And when Neil's not there and Alex and I are putting the music together, we talk about it endlessly between us and make sure we're on the same page and, and that we can get behind what he's trying to say. Because if that, that's an issue too. If he's trying to say something that we don't feel or can't agree with, it just kind of falls by the wayside. And yet, Alex, I've read both of you and Getty say that never a real fight, not to the point of like people actively screaming and yelling and being furious at each other. No, I don't recall any time like that. There have been times where we've been feeling pressure for one reason or another, you know, often external to what the band is. And really, from my experience, you know, my, my brothers come and help me. It's been a remarkable relationship that we've had. Working, laughing, living, lots of ups and downs, but we've always maintained a very strong bond and friendship throughout. And I think it really comes down to having respect for each other. And yelling and screaming is never a really good way to get anything done. Yeah, that's our Canadianness. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> You guys were constantly tinkering, I think, in terms of bringing the sound forward, changing the sound. 
And then you enter in a third phase here in the 80s where you started incorporating more synths. Your fans would say, well, Alex's guitar style changed and, you know, he adapted to different textures and different atmospheres and Getty wasn't doing enough in the band playing bass and singing vocals. He had to throw in keyboards on top of that. So oh, and his voice changed. <laughs> yeah. There are people who still won't forgive him for changing his voice. So you're That's you're right. throwing a lot of curveballs at, at your fans who like maybe loved a certain album and they go, wait a minute, this doesn't sound like X, Y, or Z record. What was sort of behind those attitudes within the band? Well, that's who we are, yeah. to be honest. Whenever we finish a record, the thing that lingers is not what you did right, but what you did wrong, or what you believe could have been better. There's an endless amount of uh, improvement that we always feel we need to make in search of writing the greatest thing we can write together. I think that willingness to keep pushing ourselves and that willingness to keep experimenting is the thing that makes us what we are and the thing that kept us together for so many years because we always agreed about that. We always agreed that, yeah, this new direction or, or you know, let's do an album where we really focus on chorus writing that's a weak area for us. Maybe we can get better on it. Or whatever the thing happened to be per record is something we always agreed with. Now, sometimes in retrospect, you look back and go, wow, that was really a left field thing that we did that. But at the time, it seemed like a good idea. Hmm. You know, we're talking about reinventions. Again, in the 90s, you know, alternative rock is ascendant. Let's challenge what Rush is again, right? Roll the Bones, Counterparts. I did a long interview with each of you separately when Counterparts came out for a magazine piece. And uh, I remember printing out 10 or 15 pages worth of stuff from this new thing, you know, these interwebs uh, uh, message boards, right? (laughs) Certainly by that point in Rush's career, 93, you're aware of the fan base. But suddenly here it is, 17,000 word discussions on the intricacies of Cygnus X1, book one, The Voyage, you know what I mean? The level of fandom. I've never gotten hate mail in my 30 Mm. years as a critic, like the hate mail I get writing about Rush, and I love you guys. Mm. I mean, it's just like, you know, you were not properly reverential of the drum fill in Bytor and the Snow Dog. Yeah, our fan base is unbelievable. And let's give credit where credit's due. The fact that they have shared that adventurous spirit that seems to be part of what we are has always kept an audience out there waiting for our new releases and that's allowed us to be successful and it's allowed us to continue feeling and acting as bold as we care to with our music. People ask me a lot of times, do you write your songs for your fans? And of course, no. We owe it to ourselves to write what we feel is going to get ourselves off and that where we want to be. But having said that, of course, we say that with the knowledge that they're out there and they're they're interested in what we're up to. And, you know, you have some sort of confidence that they're going to find something about what your new release is all about. And they're going to find that interesting. It's interesting, too, because they seem to 
your hardcore fans swim with the tide in terms of what you our guys are up to. And it seems like you're always testing them in some way. I think you guys are viewed as an island unto yourself. But it also seems like Rush listens to what's going on in the world around them musically and is picking and choosing things that they feel that they can play with. For example, something like Roll the Bones. I think the last Mm -hmm. band on earth that would have been chosen by a survey of listeners to do something influenced by rap music would have been Rush. Through uh, at any stage or any musical change, we've always been aware of what's going on. We've walked on the the shore of the mainstream, but always kind of reached in and grabbed a fish out of it every once in a while, hmm. and used some bit of it as an influence in some of our writing. It's a little bit of an experimental thing and trying new things, always in the quest of advancing and moving forward. And there's always this thing like we. You know, at different times in our career, we were very aware of what was going on out there. And sometimes you hear something and go, damn, I wish I would have thought of that. And you want to try to understand it and you want to bring that influence. And I know with me, certain singers, I love the way they sing. I love the way they they use that kind of device to get that vocal effect. Mm. So I try to emulate it my own way and see if I can bring that into my uh, lexicon of vocal phrases, so to speak. So you're always looking to absorb the good things that are happening around you and hope that that will have a bit of inspiration and a good effect on the music you're writing. Well, and that is one of the most inspiring things from Rush in 1974 to Clockwork Angels in 2012. Be here now, living in the moment, always moving forward, always expanding your areas of interest. This last tour and this R40 live box set is about looking back. And you do it in a structured way. You're kind of like taking us backwards. And I've read different things. That that was strange for you guys, but ultimately you got in the spirit. Yeah, I I loved the the concept of it, and I really embraced it early on because to me it was the story. It was a story to tell, and, and I tried to look at it in the most theatrical possible way to make the journey from today back to 1974 almost uh, beyond an audio experience but kind of a visceral and a visual experience. It was so much fun at the same time Mm. to have the set around you morph from one era to another era and uh, I think the crowd really appreciated that uh, attention to all those uh, sort of details from the period. Can I ask you guys a sociological question? 
I am aware in my entire life of two female Rush fans. Does that ever strike you when you guys look out on stage and there's 30,000 people and they're ecstatic and there's like six women? I don't, know. Uh, I don't think well, that's that, the case yeah. very much anymore. That's actually not so accurate. For the last 10 years or so, there have been many more women in our audience. And quite often I see groups of women who are out there, you know, friends, three or four of them that come to the show and they know all the material. They're singing along. They're playing Neil's riffs, you know, air drumming. And mm. we see that more <laughs> and more uh, over the years. Yeah, and, and in fact, you know, every year there's this festival called RushCon, this convention. And it's an intense gathering of Rush fans. And it's organized solely by women. The most intense Rush fans that run that thing are all women. So uh, there's been a, a change. And certainly over the last 10 years, much more visible. Someone said to me, I always knew I was at a Rush concert because there was never a lineup for the women's bathroom. <laughs> yeah, right, and right, right. That seems to have changed. He said, there was an actual lineup. I wanted to take a picture and show you guys. <laughs> this is very encouraging. This is, this is true progress in the world. There may even be hope like for peace in the Middle East. That's right. <laughs> Maybe. That's right. You guys have been together for 40-plus years now. The same three people in that lineup during that time, which is remarkable. There was a period there when, when Neil had the personal tragedies with his wife and his daughter, the death of them in the late 90s. And was there a sense there that the band could end at that point? Uh, most definitely. Yeah. Um, I think Al and I talked about it so many times, and we realized that this was probably the end. And so we kind of put it aside and just crossed our fingers and tried to help our buddy as much as we could. And he was, you know, uh, in a terrible state of mind, as mm -hmm. you can imagine. And... Uh, tried to sort of run. Uh, running was his way of trying to deal with it. And we'd get, you know, postcards from beyond from him uh, from time to time. And so it was a big concern that he was okay and he was going to make it through that. When the band did get back together again in the early 2000s, was there any kind of a change in the dynamic or perhaps a renewal or a recommitment to something? Did you sense any of that when Neil came back into the band and said, let's do this again. The first thing we did when he came back was to make a record. That was Vapor Trails. And it was a very fragile time. He hadn't played drums in three years. So it was a long journey for him to come back to his old self as a drummer. Just the experience in the studio was, you know, everything was just so delicate. It was very difficult to just jump up and down and and go, yeah, it's all back together. And that didn't really happen until the first show of that tour in Hartford, Connecticut, when we were on stage. And I remember we just, we looked at each other at one point, Katie and I came back to Neil's drums. And we just looked at each other and knew that we were back mm -hmm. and we could move forward from that point on. It was a, a very palpable moment.
been an absolute honor and a pleasure. I could do this for six more hours. <laughs> Let's Greg, do right? it. There's like so much we didn't even get into. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Getty. It's been it's, a pleasure, yeah, guys. Big pleasure. Thanks. Really fun. That wraps up our 2016 conversation with Getty Lee and Alex Lifeson of Rush. And now we want to hear from you. What memories did you make listening to Rush songs? Call and leave a message on our hotline at 888-859-1800 or find us on Twitter or Facebook. Up next, we mourn the loss of Pete Shelley, leader of the Buzzcocks. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and that is What Do I Get by the Immortal Buzzcocks, the UK band uh, fronted by one Pete Shelley, who died a few weeks ago at the age of 63. Uh, this is a tough one for both you and me, Jim. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Shelley was a major influence on so many bands and songwriters over the last few decades. And in the 70s, uh, part of the punk movement out of the UK it was interesting because you had the Sex Pistols and, and, and Sham 69, and, you know, fashion was a big part of it. You know, if you didn't have a safety pin and a mohawk or a, <laughs> some, you know, bizarre-looking uh, haircut uh, and a leather jacket, you didn't really belong to the punk movement. But I think it was much wider than that. It was much more than just a fashion statement in the U.K., and the Buzzcocks were, were, were proof of that. Uh, they looked like uh, college students when they walked up on stage initially. Yeah. Um, and very smart sophisticated uh, lyrics, uh, primarily by Pete Shelley, but at the same time, these buzzsaw uh, riffs and pithy melodies and, and very well-constructed songs. You're making out with school kids, one of the heads of state. You've been a man with a leg day who puts a little plastic robins on the Christmas cakes. I mean, it may be heretical uh, to some people to say, they were the next generation's answer to the Beatles. They certainly were. But they, I believe that they were, absolutely were. We, and Shelley, we both do. Shelley was the primary songwriter, but Steve Diggle, his partner, was very much in a Lennon-McCartney sort of mm-hmm. relationship with him. This band was right at the epicenter of what happened with Punk Jim. I mean, that show that he and his fellow upstart, Howard DeVoto, the uh, co-founders of the Buzzcocks, initially in, in the mid-'70s, they hosted a show at the Lesser Free Trade Hall in Manchester, England, on June 4th, 1976. It was the first Sex Pistols show outside of London. Right. This new band, they'd seen the Sex Pistols in London. They were blown away. They said, we can do that. And uh, meanwhile, everybody who's anybody in the Manchester scene then and in the future was at that show. Future members of Joy Division, future members of the Smiths, right. Fa- right. future Factory <laughs> Records uh Founder Anthony Wilson, yeah. uh, the producer Martin Hannett, who made all those amazing records, and one Steve Diggle, 
who uh, became the immediately after the bassist in the Buzzcocks, later guitarist and co-songwriter uh, with, with Shelley. In the I, band. I love the story of the way Shelley and Devoto met, which is there was a tacked-on sign on the bulletin board looking for a fellow musician to play Sister Ray with him. <laughs> you know, the uh, Velvet Underground noise uh, assault. Uh, but, but, but melody was part of the Buzzcocks from the mm-hmm. very beginning. Despite the speed and the, the ferocity of those punk songs, it was as if you took the Beatles' catalog and shoved it all into two minutes. <laughs> That's exactly true. You know, the, the release that I think everybody points to when they think about the Buzzcocks from that era is it's a compilation of their singles. Yeah. Singles going steady. And I don't think there's a better document out of the entire punk era than that record. Uh, these pithy two-minute blasts of, as you said, hyperspeed melody. Yeah. And what do I get? Ever fallen in love with someone you shouldn't have? Everybody's happy nowadays. I was tired of being upset. Always wanted something I never could get. Life's an illusion, love's a dream. But I don't know what it is. Song after song after song that just hits you between the eyes with this just rush of uh, feedback, guitars, melody, and these lyrics that were quite uh, witty and sly, on the surface appearing to be somewhat uh, you know, straightforward love songs with a lot of depth and nuance to them. Uh, well, and, that, and that was Pete Shelley. That album, Singles Going Steady, is the one to buy, mm-hmm. a perfect album, shortlisted on my 10 that I'd have to take to a desert island. But all three of the first uh, studio albums, Another Music in a Different Kitchen, Love Bites, and A Different Kind of Tension, are inventive. They see the group moving forward, uh, playing with the sound, a lot of interesting production, and Greg. Mm. Some of the best rock and roll love songs in history, but without a particular gender. Right. I don't want to live in a dream, I want something real. And I think I understand now the way that you feel. Say you don't. It is always Shelley singing. It could be any lover, male, female, uh, transgender. You know, it's a very open and embracing approach mm-hmm. to sexuality. When the Buzzcocks take their first hiatus and Shelley uh, pairs off as a solo artist, he makes a fantastic uh, single called Homo Sapien. I'm the shy boy, you're the coy boy, and you know what Homo Sapien too. I'm the cruiser, you're the loser, me and you are Homo Sapien too. He had been playing uh, with synthesizers since 1974. You know, very much influenced by uh, Eno and progressive rock. And when he struck out as a solo artist, it was to do a sort of electronic dance music, really uh, ahead of its time. The BBC decided that its lyrics were too racy. We look at it now, and it's, you know, shy boy, coy boy, we're both homo sapiens. We're all human beings. Right. And somehow that gets banned. (laughs) And it has been said that he could arguably have been better known as a solo artist if not for the way uh, the media killed that single. Another point I want to make is there are two other periods of productivity. The Buzzcocks come back later in 1993 with an album that is every bit as good as those first three studio records. Trade Test Transmissions. Mm -hmm. I thought you were so innocent until I got my fingers but you think you're strange and quite peculiar let the first appearance fool you 
and they put out three more records in the 90s, and they go on a little break again, and then they put out three more records in the 2000s. Their last was The Way in 2014, put out by the ultra-hip uh, English indie Domino Records, mm -hmm. which was proud to have them. They are rare. Uh, we can count, uh, really, on one hand, the, among the bands of the punk era that came back and consistently did work as good as the first time. I think Wire is another group. I think Mission of Burma. Uh, and then the list starts to drop off, right? <laughs> exactly. I mean, here's a band whose influence is so wide. I think that's one of the reasons uh, we wanted to uh, pay tribute to them. Because the original music may not be widely known. I mean, everybody who heard this band, pretty much everybody I know that heard this band, reveres them yeah. uh, for exactly the reasons we were talking about. And there's a whole bunch of other people who, uh, they were they were kind of a second-tier punk band. Not as well-known as the Sex Pistols or the Clash out of the UK or, or, or the Ramones in America. Uh, so they never quite registered on that level. They were much more popular in the UK than they were in America. No, oh, they didn't uh, get over here to era. tour. Right. And, but the thing is, people kept talking about them, and American bands kept talking about them, R.E.M. and Nirvana in particular. Peter Buck of R.E.M. would mention them on almost every interview. Kurt Cobain brought them up. They had them open for them, you know, on tour. Yeah, that last tour that Nirvana did in Europe in 94 was with the Buzzcocks. And I talked to Shelley um, in the early 90s when they were beginning the second go-round as a band, and I said, Pete, why did you decide to come back? And he said, you know, there's a lot of noisy music out there right now, which meant, you know, our stuff is in the air again. But there's not much noisy music you can go away humming afterward. Yeah. And that's exactly the key, the, the, the melody and the punk. And hence, you have pop punk. You have 10 million selling bands like Green Day and Offspring who owe every note they ever committed to the recording studio, to what the Buzzcocks did. Do you have the time to listen to me whine about nothing and everything all at once? And they own up to it. Uh, 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 Billy Joe Armstrong posted on Instagram, uh, leader of Green Day, Buzzcocks pretty much invented a style that would influence multiple generations of lonesome hearts and weirdos, which is as nice as the tribute gets. Uh, Diggle was crestfallen, uh, Shelley's partner in leading the band, to my friend, brother, and musical partner of 43 years. Wow. Here's yeah. to you, Pete. 43 years. That's a hell of a good run, Greg. That's incredible. But I will argue the only way to pay tribute to Pete Shelley in music is to play this song, which I think is neck and neck with Sheena is a Punk Rocker by the Ramones for probably the best punk song ever. Would you disagree? Let's just not even say punk song. Let's just say one of the best song, songs ever. Just song, yeah. Absolutely. Ever fallen in love with someone who you shouldn't have fallen in love with? My God, there's the existential question. We've all been there. You make me feel under the hood and I'm hurt And if I start a commotion Thank you. 
ever fallen in love with someone who you shouldn't have fallen in love with? The Buzzcocks. Man, I love that song. Yeah, that is a great one. You can't go wrong with the Buzzcocks first era. You know, I think the magnum opus in terms of album album versus singles album for for the Buzzcocks was uh, their their 1979 uh, recording, A Different Kind of Tension, which proved to be the swan song in terms of the albums they put out in that first era. Uh, and that was Shelley uh, going deep. Uh, you know, he told me he wanted to do five songs on one side to put across an idea about the disintegration of the ego. You know, this is a guy who was thinking big with these little small songs. You he know? had been a philosophy major yeah. before punk, yes. And the song that they would end their shows with uh, after that uh, came from that album. It's a song called I Believe. And it was a seven-minute song. So by, that, uh, by the length alone, it was unusual by Buzzcock standards, and it was also epic. It was one of those songs that they would play, they would leave the stage, and the audience would linger for 10 more minutes singing that indelible chorus. We both had that experience yeah. at Buzzcock shows. You and I both saw them at the New Music Seminar when they made their big comeback in the in the early 90s, I believe, and everybody who was any, anybody was in that audience. Chris Dokselic yeah. was there, yep. Peter Buck of R.E.M. was there. I mean, it was, uh, and we were all singing that song as they, as they left the stage. Yeah. Here's that epic refrain from I Believe by the Buzzcocks on Sound Opinion. I'm skipping the pages of a book that takes ages for the forward to end. Triangle of copper concealing another aspect of you. My relative motion is just an illusion that's often too fast. The essence of being, these feelings I'm feeling, I just want them to I believe there is no love in this world anymore. Pete Shelley thought quite the opposite. Dead at the age of 63. We will miss him. Greg, what's on the show next week? Jim, next week we are going to uh, reflect on some of our favorite songs of 2018 with our annual mixtapes. Can't wait, Greg. You can download Sound Opinions wherever you get your podcasts. Sound Opinions is produced by Brendan Banizak, Alex Claiborne, Iana Contreras, and Andrew Gill. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Sound Opinions, this is Michael Perez from Chicago. I just wanted to call in with my favorite album of this year, and it's Songs of Praise from Shame. They are uh, 
young group of guys from the UK, and uh, the album came out earlier this year, so I've been listening to it ever since. I couldn't stop. It's uh, very heavy, but witty and energetic at the same time. You can't listen to one Rizla without bobbing your head. Their live show is even better. I saw them at South by Southwest for the first time, and again here in Chicago at a neighborhood fest called West Fest, and uh, enjoyed the show every single time. Thank you guys for putting on a great show every week. There, Jim and Greg, and also hello to Ayana, Alex, Andrew, and Brendan. Uh, this is Hannah in Chicago. I was formerly an intern for Sound Opinions. I'm calling with the best album of 2018. Uh, I have loved Cannonball by Sen Morimoto, uh, which is a name that might be familiar to people who are living in Chicago. Uh, he's a young musician, saxophonist, singer, who just dropped this album last year and it really just blew me away. It's uh, Peck will be produced. Uh, his saxophone playing features on the album. It's really a wonderful experience beginning to end, but I think my favorites are the bookends of the album sections and people watching. I hope you guys are doing well. Hi, this is Rebecca calling from Portland, Oregon, and I'm calling in response to the Rock Doctors episode from a few weeks ago when you had another Rebecca um, on the line with the question of anthemic songs for young boys. And I want to suggest the Joke by Brandy Carlisle, which is also one of my favorite songs from this year. And every time I listen to it, I think of my six-year-old son and how much he loves to dance and the gentle way that he wrestles with his younger sister and how his kindness and empathy are the qualities that I want to nurture in him and celebrate about him for the rest of his life. Feeling nervous, aren't you, boy? With your quiet voice and impeccable style. Don't ever let them steal your joy and your gentle ways to keep them from running wild. So, I don't know if the mood of the song might be a bit more dark than what Rebecca was looking for, but um, Brandy's voice is certainly anthemic and visceral, and I think it's worth a listen. So thank you very much. I love the show. Trying to hide inside of it and hide how much it hurts. Let Thank you. 
No more messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.